Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Cameron. So I know that this is not the normal day that we drop an episode, but we did want to share with you another FP podcast that looks at the global economy. It's called The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, or HERO, as we call it. The podcast looks at ways that women are fighting against patriarchal power structures to forge new paths to economic independence. The last season focused on the idea of male allies and when they're most effective. It just wrapped up, so feel free to binge all six episodes. But we'll start you off today with one episode that we particularly appreciated. Here's Heroes host, Rena Nynam. Before we start, a quick warning. This episode discusses gender-based violence. There are no graphic depictions, but some of the subjects mentioned may be unsuitable for children. Two steps forward, one step back. That phrase applies to a lot of social change, including efforts to advance gender equality. The last few episodes, we've looked at ways different countries have gotten more women into government. Two steps forward. And in South Africa specifically, they've made great strides in recent decades to support women's access to power. But according to Professor Christopher Sike, the one step back is brutal, gender-based violence. Isike teaches political science at the University of Pretoria. One of his specialties is studying why men and boys are violent toward women and girls. His research over the last decade has involved running focus groups with men and boys. Well, in all these discussions, I asked one question. How do you see women? The kind of responses I got from all the men, especially the younger men, was very profound. What did they say? For example, when I asked the question of how do you see women, most of the young boys said we see women as snakes. Snakes? Yes. From Foreign Policy, this is the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. I'm Rena Nainen. On today's show, you'll hear stories from male allies in South Africa trying to end gender-based violence. It's devastating for women and girls, both physically and psychologically, but also economically. The Mail and Guardian reports that the country lost about $2 billion in 2019 from the estimated costs of gender-based violence. That includes hospital bills, loss of productivity, and judicial costs to just name a few. One of the key ways to decrease gender-based violence is influencing boys and men to do better. Our reporter, Elna Schutz, found out how this might work, starting with one man. All right, let's go up, guys, to where the magic happens. Welcome, Vitboy runs the Bright Spark Foundation SA out of some remodeled apartments in a busy part of Johannesburg. We're standing in a studio space where yoga and other classes take place. There's a long wall covered in mirrors. Um, we use the mirrors as a means for them to look at themselves and ask themselves, the man that stands before you, 
what does he want? What is his need? You know, it's kind of like a nice exercise to just basically speak to you, speak to yourself. The man in the mirror before me now runs an organization for men and boys, as well as girls, to improve their lives. But Welcome used to be a gang leader in Paulsmore, a maximum security prison that is sometimes considered one of the world's most dangerous. So I was very ruthless, I was very brutal. Um, I, I was afraid of the space, so therefore I exerted a lot of, of brutality because I wanted them to fear me. That's changed a lot. I see a much more gentler man. You know, I see a man that is filled with love. I see a man that is compassionate. I also see a man that has been through a lot, but has also learned a lot. For around four years, Welcome attended classes and received support from Sonke Gender Justice, an organization whose mission it is to advance gender equality and decrease gender-based violence. Today, he's giving back by running a variety of programs, including leading sessions with other men. How do we focus on the boys by putting the boys first? How does a boy know, okay, now I have to put myself first? I get to visit one of these groups and sit in the middle of a circle of teenagers and young people. There's laughter and jokes, but the main discussion today about fatherhood is rather serious. Many of the young men share how they want to be good examples in their community. Then, Welcome shares a pivotal moment from his life when he overheard a group of men in prison bragging about their exploits. A warning, this next part is hard to hear. And when they broke into houses, what they used to do to these females when they found girls at home on their own, how they would rape, how they would, you know, just have their way with her. And these men laughed because other men were encouraging them and saying to them, so when she was doing this, what did you do? Hey, bra, you, you know. So there was this kind of encouragement in this negative behavior that made these men feel like what we are doing is the right thing. Welcome started to question their behavior. I sat there and I realized that if I were to have a daughter one day, what kind of father am I going to be? And how will I be able to protect my daughter against men like these? If I myself am a perpetrator of violence, if I myself is part of these men, how am I going to take accountability and change my life? That is at that moment when I decided that if I leave prison, I don't want to be in the circle of these men. If this prison realization was a spark for welcome, Receiving training from Sonke was the fuel that really helped him on his new path. Like for those seven years of being in those programs, I was able to really look at myself and redevelop and, and, and restructure my sense of what a man is because I realized that I was being a boy. And these programs allowed me to start looking within myself and saying, but there is an awesome man within me and that is how I was able to change my life. The idea of working with men and boys was that wasn't that we were in, going to incarcerate our way to reductions in gender-based violence, but that in fact we were going to address the gender norms that contributed to men's violence. This is Dean Peacock, co-founder of Sonke Gender Justice. The organization's roots stem back to 2005, when then South African President Jacob Zuma was accused of rape. 
Dean and others moved to lead a series of protests against Zuma, and from there they realized that organizing men and boys against gender-based violence was essential. It really pushed us to think about what would a more political response to men's violence look like? How would we hold political leaders accountable? How would we hold men in um, public positions more broadly accountable for violence? And how might a conversation about accountability generate a national conversation about men's roles and responsibilities in addressing gender-based violence. Um, but in South Africa for a long time, I think most of the attention went to the criminal legal system, most of the attention and most of the resources. He realized early on how important it was that beyond prosecution, something needs to be done to shift the root of the violence. And that focuses on men and how their understanding and practicing of masculinity affected the broader picture. Through the years, Sonka has made a difference both with individuals and on a national scale. For instance... We also, as another example of that kind of work, joined a coalition and played a very active role in defeating the traditional courts bill in the early 2010s. Had this bill been made law, it would have affected around 17 million South Africans and in essence given them no way to opt out of being ruled by customary courts. Sonke argued it would in effect bring back apartheid-like geographical divisions in the country, meaning there are different laws in different areas. This also would have made it harder for women to leave abusive partnerships. And that bill, had it been passed, would have essentially uh, reduced women to second-class citizens in rural communities with regards to accessing their rights. Women are usually not included or considered in traditional leadership and often suffer under its rulings. And so we worked with many women's rights organizations, but Sonke played an important role in, in pushing back and engaging male traditional leaders in rural communities across the country. And we were well positioned to do that because many of our staff came from those communities. And so we were able to get some traditional leaders in certain places to speak out against the bill. This meant rural women continued to access a wider range of rights, and Sonke helped men understand that this was important. While the organization originally focused on men, the meaning of the word Sonke shows how they approached this work. Sonke means all of us, because we were arguing that gender is actually about all of us in society, women and men, boys and girls. Bafana Kumalu co-founded Sonke with Dean and is still in leadership there. While the organization has changed a lot over the years, something that has stayed constant is the element of working with men directly. One of our flagship programs was then developing what we call the One Man Can, um, a program that was intended to de-educate men and re-educate them. Because there was this notion that, you know, gender equality is a zero-sum gain which only benefits women. One Man Can runs projects and training with men, and they are meeting men outside of classrooms or community centres. There have been programmes that integrate the curriculum into a series of soccer tournaments, health programmes, and even inside prisons, including, yes, the prison Welcome Vitboy was in. One study back in 2009 found that those in the program had significant short-term behavioural change around health and violence. Over 80% talked to friends or family members about HIV, gender 
and human rights issues. And after completing the program, these men were much more likely to report instances of gender-based violence to authorities. Bafana attributes much of this success to their approach of confronting issues without being confrontational. We felt very strongly it doesn't help to simply go and denigrate men and tell them how bad they are. The men don't listen. And so we felt let's be much more innovative. What are the things that we can look at in society that can incentivize men to become allies for gender transformation because they see it as something important also for them? This can come in the form of better health, relationships or just good old support. That part is really highlighted in Men Care, a global campaign that Sonke helps coordinate. Uh, Men Care focuses on issues like, for instance, positive uh, fatherhood, because one of the other challenges is absent fathers. A report by Statistics South Africa a few years back showed that only around a third of children in the country lived with their biological fathers. I mean, in fact, it started with us decrying this uh, notion where we always focused on the young girls who fall pregnant in school and blame them. That, of course, affects everyone, but particularly younger mothers, considering the country has one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy in the world, nearly one in four girls under 20. What the program leaders at Tsonke found was not young men who were irresponsible, but unsupported. Many of them said, look, truth of the matter is I'm afraid. I have never had a father figure in my own life. Now I'm being expected to look after a life. Where do I even begin? If I have concerns, who do I go to? Once they started creating these spaces of support, like in fathers' groups, a few things happened. The men did better. They got involved with prenatal care, even when that wasn't the norm, for instance, at hospital appointments. They now saw their well-being in the context of their families. But also an important result for us was we saw lower levels of gender-based violence in the couples that were part of this program. Because these men were much more sensitive We saw an uptake of care work. These men didn't mind to do chores. They didn't mind to take their children to the clinic. In fact, they were proud to be seen with their children. All of this work changed the men's mindset. It's a very interesting thing because when they begin to bond with their children, they also then care for the mothers of these children. That might look like young mothers remaining in school, being able to study or work. We know that that is very positive for her in terms of her health outcomes. But it also incentivizes women to say, what are the other things that I can do with my life? Because now I have time to do that. This work has also affected daughters positively. Girls particularly develop a very strong bond with their fathers. And when they have that bond, they perform better at school. They become more assertive. They also then choose their partners very carefully because they look for partners who treat them like their fathers treat them. In reporting the story, I heard similar praise about Sanka's work from different sources. The relationships were better and the parenting was stronger. The men were starting to embrace new patriarchal notions because they felt supported. It has helped us to, if you like, rehumanize us, to see that manhood is not just about hurting, 
is not about power. It's not about control. Manhood is actually about care. It's actually about accompaniment. It's actually about ensuring that you work with your partners in this regard. The men were starting to embrace new notions because they felt supported. Can you please tell them to stop moving up and down? On the day I met with Welcome, the reformed gangster, I also met with his partner, Tobika Yisim Kubisa. As much as you feel comfortable. <laughs> she explained how men-supported programs have transformed both of their lives. And with Welcome at first, like, he was loving, but he also had his dark side. Like, when we have an argument, we'd, like, throw cups and all that, you know. But I kept on wanting to understand the men beyond that. They worked on their relationship and Welcome continued his personal work, for instance with the Mankind Project, that's MKP for short, and things kept growing. But looking at where he was or where we were at first and now, like he does MKP, which is a group of men that hold him accountable. You know, he does his work on a daily. And I would say from 2019 to now, we don't have cups flying around anymore. Welcome can attest transformations are possible. And he's dedicated to helping others find a path to being better partners, husbands and fathers. If we can protect women in a little space, it's going to start growing. And the rest of South Africa at the end of the day will feel safe. And that's we need to start somewhere. For the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, I'm Elna Schutz. Next, more from my conversation with the University of Pretoria professor Christopher Sique. He tells me what he learned from men and boys about why they commit gender-based violence and what motivates them to stop. More on that after the break. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainan. Before the break, you heard about a South African nonprofit supporting men and boys in various ways, which also helped them become less violent. Now we turn to a conversation I had with University of Pretoria political science professor Christopher Asike. His research about why some men and boys hurt women and girls is disturbing and insightful, but ultimately hopeful. You believe that for there to be change in violent behavior, men's violent behavior towards women, you say, and I'm quoting here from you, there is a need to focus on changing male thought patterns that drive gender-based violence and femicide, end quote. Can you sort of explain why changing how men think about gender-based violence is so important? Well, from the studies that I did, there's a relationship between what men think and their behavior in this instance. And so if you answer the question of what men think of women, 
you'll find from these studies that I did that they thought of women along two lines, mainly uh, women as properties owned, men could own and then, you know, control. So that conception of ownership is a big problem. And then the second was the perception of females in oppositional terms. For example, young university boys across two universities over a 10-year period that I talked to, they see women as their properties, as sex objects. It means that when a woman tried to be outside that box, she would get a response. In this instance, to be a violent response from a man who believes in his mind that this is how the woman should be. And so if we want to address that problem, we need to address it mentally from the thought pattern, the ideation that drive the violent behavior in the first place. Was there anything that stood out to you in these moments when you were holding this focus group? Well, in all these discussions, I asked one question. How do you see women? The kind of responses I got from all the men, especially the younger men, was very profound. What did they say? For example, when I asked the question of how do you see women, most of the young boys said we see women as snakes. Snakes? Yes. Why snakes? Well, because there are common conceptions of women as deceptive, necessary, evil. I try to make them understand that there's a relationship between how you see and how you do. So I asked the boys, if you see a woman as a snake, do you now see why you are violent towards women? And they agreed that that was a conception of women that they had and that they thought was one of the factors that informed dangerous or hegemonic masculinities. Mm. Mm. How do you change this thought pattern among men? One of the things I've suggested is to engage in going to the history to show that in pre-colonial Africa, men had positive gender relations with women and men had positive, affirmative thoughts, you know, towards women that would inform, it will reduce the amount of resistance that, you know, men in post-colonial Africa have about, you know, gender equality, women's rights. Because a lot of them, from my studies, also resist anything about gender equality because they think that it is a Western thing. So if we're able to convince those kinds of men that actually respecting women is a gender equality aspect of African culture, authentic African culture that was in the continent long, long before colonialism started in the continent, then maybe we'll be able to get those people to begin to think more carefully about resisting women's rights as a Western thing. People do not know that among this so-called patriarchal Zulu culture, women had rights and privileges that so-called civilized societies, even in the 1900s, did not have. And one of them is the fact that as far back as the 17th, 18th century, women in Zulu kingdom could own cows, which was the highest level of privilege in society, where a woman could get up to a point where she could achieve the feat of owning cows and become wealthy in society. A woman could decide to get married to another woman. This is something that is not known, and it speaks volumes about gender relations in African societies. When you were doing these focus groups and you were able to show these men how colonialism changed the view of women negatively, 
How did they respond to that message? They took it very well. I had asked one of them who was a pastor of a church who had said earlier on in the, uh, to the question of how you see women, you saw women as uh, not trustworthy, you know, women as children that needed to be shepherded and even used the Bible to try and justify sexism. But then, because he was the one of the older men in the group, I had asked him if he heard about this story of where if two people were fighting, two men were fighting, and a woman came in between these two, if the fight stopped. And he said, yes, he had heard it from his grandmother. And I said, what did that tell you about how men then saw women compared to how you today see women? And he reflected and said, oh, yeah, that's true, that um, he's remembering now that there were certain ideals about manhood then that his grandmother told him that is different from the kind of ideals of manhood that men have today. And the idea of numzani, numzani means real man. The responsibilities associated with that included not just protecting women, but also respecting women as equal beings. Okay? And so I said to him, so what changed? And that was when he began to reflect and realize that there had been a missing link in terms of you know, the cultural progression or cultural understanding of what being Zulu and man in Zulu kingdom meant. And then they got into solution mode. And that's when they started talking about, well, if we had these kinds of conversation more often, maybe we would learn more. And that's where the idea of engaging them through men's clubs or boys clubs, depending on which level, which, which category came up. You contributed to KwaZulu-Natal's current gender strategy plan. What are the biggest recommendations for decreasing gender-based violence? In terms of gender-based violence specifically, one of the biggest recommendations I made was to establish new men's clubs and support those ones that are already existing. So one of the findings from the focus group discussion was that men, especially the older men, said that they don't have networking platforms where they can engage gender relations and the challenges that come from it and then learn from each other. So across the province, there are cases of men's forum in workplaces and KwaZulu-Natal was very good on this. They have men's forum in the workplace, they have women's forum and during those men's forum, they use it as a platform for engaging in workplace violence against women or structural uh, impediments that prevent women from being uh, you know, effective in the workplace. And these have worked in workspaces. So I was recommending that, look, they should take this beyond their offices and workplaces, scale it down to society, go to primary schools, go to high schools, go to universities and encourage communities to have boys clubs where boys can come together and begin a gender socialization, a gender sensitivity, a gender awareness, a relationship or collaboration programs that will provide opportunities for them to be free, spaces for them to express themselves, their thoughts, and for men who are gender sensitive to come in there, and men that they look up to in society, to mentor them and begin to re-socialize them. This was one way I thought that could be used to address a problem. Christopher Izike, professor of African politics and international relations at the Department of Political Science, University of Pretoria, South Africa. Christopher, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Next week on the podcast, when women in Uganda break into the mining sector, they earn much more than in other fields, but they often have to overcome gender discrimination and skepticism from their own husbands. One solution? 
have their spouses join them for training sessions. The negativity of the husbands, they don't want their women to come and be within the groups. What it takes to turn men from adversaries to advocates for female economic empowerment. That's next week on the podcast. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and is made possible through funding in part from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Nainen. Our show is produced by Rosie Julin. Our senior producer, Laura Rossbrow Tellum. Rob Sachs is our managing director. One Step Back is our marketing manager. Elna Schutz contributed reporting for this episode. And if you like our show, share the love. If you're on social media, we hope you'll post about it. And if not, tell a friend how much you appreciate the show. Every little bit helps us grow our audience. Thanks again, and we'll be back in your feed very soon. Take care in the meantime. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.